Welcome to episode number four of the Road to Cinema podcast, as we delve into screenwriting with the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Rain Man, Ronald Bass. Today's episode features an in-depth conversation on Mr. Bass's process of writing a screenplay. Also, the development of the Oscar-winning film Rain Man, as well as breaking romantic comedy genre conventions with My Best Friend's Wedding, starring Julia Roberts. We also discuss the importance of collaboration with both directors, such as Francis Ford Coppola, Bob Rafelson, and Steven Spielberg, as well as actors, such as Dustin Hoffman, Tom Cruise, and the late Robin Williams, who starred in Mr. Bass's screenplay of What Dreams May Come. Please visit jogroadproductions.com to read the Road to Cinema blog. Check out the Road to Cinema interview series on YouTube at our Jog Road Productions YouTube channel. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter for the latest updates at Jog Road. And now we join our conversation with screenwriter Ronald Bass as he discusses what inspired him to become a writer. When I was a kid, I was bedridden for a lot of time. For a lot of the time. Yeah. And I wrote little stories when I was very young. Like five or six, I taught myself to read when I was three. And so as I was growing up in like elementary school, junior high school, high school, my heroes were Dostoevsky and Faulkner and Fitzgerald. And I wanted to be a novelist, and I wrote um, a, a novel uh, in high school, really, and showed it to my, to my college English teacher. Um, and um, she liked it, but not as much as I wanted her to. She didn't think she could get it published. And... Uh, and uh, I was just super depressed. I burned the only copy that existed. <laughs> and uh, I didn't write again for many, many years. Many, many years. Uh, so that's when you decided to just go to law school uh, I dropped, after that. that well, was... I dropped out of, um, out of philosophy at Stanford, which I originally started in that. Yeah. I really wanted to be a writer. And then philosophy became all math instead of ethics and metaphysics. I wound up in political science. Um, I spent... Uh, was in the first first um, spring and summer campus that Sanford had in Italy. They we just started their foreign campuses then in Florence, and uh, so I decided I want to be in the foreign service. Went into uh, political science, but then um, in '63 I was an intern uh, on the Hill for a congressman, and I met uh, I met President Kennedy just before he was shot. Wow! And we were living in an old apartment in Second and East Southeast. And bunch of people all we were just all gonna go into the government and save and save the world <laughs> and, um, and uh, in that one moment where he was shot a million lives were changed a zillion really bright people who wanted to go into government service and didn't we all went in the private sector we all kind of split up uh, I went on to uh, I was in Yale at that point getting a master's in international relations looking to go into the foreign service Dropped that, went to law school at Harvard, um, and uh, became an entertainment lawyer because I wanted to be around the people that I wasn't good enough to to be myself, <laughs> represent them. And uh, I did. We did a lot of that. And so seventeen years. That's a long time. Oh, it is. Uh, so what? So did you always? Ha- did you have an idea for a story in the back of your mind? As well, the novel that writing? I burned. What, what happened was um, I, I married to my present wife for thirty-eight years, but before then I was married. Before, and um, when that marriage broke up, I was really depressed, and I began to rewrite the novel that I had burned as a kid. Wow. Wow. And I found an agent, and uh, he 
had it published, uh, and uh, I met my present wife, and uh, I just was writing then as a hobby, um, and practicing law full time, and then we had babies. And uh, how did you find the balance for it all? You know, like gosh, it sounds like like we had our babies. I was proud of law. I was writing my book. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of it was kind of like that. Um, <laughs> the writing was the thing I most wanted to do, so that took mm. every moment that I wasn't with. Um, it was really just the first kid, just mm. the older daughter, I was born in 1980, and um, I would get up. This is you know, I start work every day now at two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. Wow. Uh, and so I had begun getting up at three thirty four and writing, and then the kid would wake up, and I'd hang with her a little bit, and then I'd get in the office by 8, and I'd, and I'd practice law all day long, and I'd write on the weekends, I'd write on vacations. And you made the time. Yeah. Made the time, and then what happened was I, um, the, the last novel sold for film, mm-hmm. and because I, what I knew how to do was make those deals, <laughs> I insisted that I write the screenplay, even though I'd never written one before. Mm. And I wrote the screenplay for it, and that was in 1983. And that was my introduction to the world of writing screenplay, which I preferred, yeah. turns out. <laughs> well, I mean, I was successful in it, but, I, but I, it was a better format. Why do you think you, were more, you felt more adept to writing screenplays than novels? Well, that's an interesting question. I'm more adept. I never really think of it that way, but that's probably also or true. Just more I, I don't think I'm a, good, or, think I'm a yeah. good enough writer to write fiction at a at a literary level, so it was more a storytelling level. Yeah. Um, but my my taste and talents were for character and dialogue rather than prose and insightful description and so forth. That kind of, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say bored me, but it wasn't really the yeah. essence of what it was about. Mm-hmm. And and screenplay was all about the essence of what was going on. I, when I, I've written a lot of screenplays in partnership with authors of the books that we adapted and, and um, one famous story is that when we did the Joy Luck Club and Amy Tan agreed to write the screenplay with me and she came and sat down in, my, in the office in my home she came down from San Francisco and she had a computer and she had a recorder and she was all ready to go and she, where do we start and I said well I had previously a couple of years before written a, a script for Francis Coppola called Gardens of Stone and in those days there were like very, very nobody had computers he had a computer. That was a very unusual, <laughs> very unusual thing in 1985. Um, to, for, and he had a program that screenplayized the novel. Didn't novelize screenplay. Screenplay. I took a novel that we were going to write, Garden yeah. of Stone, and printed it out in screenplay form. And what he taught me was that there's somewhere between two and four. More, as many times as many pages in, in a screenplay form. So if you had a 400-page novel, it was like an 800-page screenplay or a 1,000-page screenplay mm-hmm. when, you, when you figured it out. Yeah. So I explained, explained this to Amy, and she said, oh, my God, what are we going to do? <laughs> and I said, well, it's going to free you up from realizing that we're not really editing. It's not an editing job. Yeah. It is a completely reimagining job. I said, this chapter that we're going to start with is 16 pages. That's like a, a 50-page scene. <laughs> we have to name this tune in two and a half notes. I've budgeted this for two and a half pages yeah. for this. She said, how will we ever do that? <laughs> and I said, ask yourself, how deep can we cut in? What's the essential emotional transaction in the scene? Central, central emotional transaction, how deep can we cut in to the conversation before we see them? 
Yeah. How fast can we cut out? And it's really about buying that economy it. to really. Well, yeah. e economy is is um, is one way to look at it. It's kind of yeah. a negative way to look at it. I, I, to me, it's like more like finding the essence. Yeah. When you find the essence of it, then you're just purely presenting scenes that are essence, 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 and in, and in novels, in many novels, and certainly the only ones that I'd be capable of writing, you wander around and you indulge yourself and you get into these many, many pages of this and that because there's no limitation. And I still do occasionally right now, as I wrote one a couple of years ago, a YA, YA fantasy love story with a partner, one of the women that works with me. And um, it was great fun because I had no restrictions and we just do whatever we wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> And then they gave us notes, and if we didn't like the notes, we didn't. If we liked the notes, and some of them were good, we were grateful. And if we didn't like the notes, we didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, at the very beginning of when you were writing that first uh, screenplay, had you read other screenplays? You mean, as a kid? Oh no! Or, uh, or, the, for adapting the novel. You have to know with the screenplay. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. Were there, were there other screenplays that you had read that sort of gave you the idea of how the format could be used? Well, to the sure, you do uh, that. I mean, first of all, I was I was a lawyer and had many. We had many writer clients. So I'd read a lot of screenplays anyway. Yeah. But yeah, but that's yes, of course. You, those are easy to find. You can find them online now. Before you can go to the Writers Guild and they just give you. You find out who are the writers you like that you want to steal from. You're like yeah. you know. Who are the best writers around, and you get their screenplays and you read them. <clears throat> That's really the best training or preparation. Never go to a screenwriting class. Never mm. read a book on screenwriting. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Those, what do you, what do you are, think are some of the pitfalls that are uh, taught in? Uh... It's funny, you know. I was <clears throat> a friend who was a was the father of one of my daughter's friends, and he's writing screenplays. And he called me yesterday, and he wanted to go into my process for for how I start from scratch and how I build a story and how I do it. Yeah. We'd had one meeting before and I was talking to him and yesterday he said, yeah, the problem I'm having though is like, you know, I know the second act has to be twice as long as the other acts. I said, just, Steve, just stop. Who the bleep said that to you? Well, it was a book I read some years ago. <laughs> I said, that's like eating poison. And, and the worst thing about it by far 30 of the top 10 things before you get to any mistakes like that, which is a stupid thing to say that the second act has to be a certain length and twice as long as the other acts, when the biggest problem in most scripts is the second act is too long. Yeah. Um, the big problem is you accept that there is authority. You accept that there is a right way to do it. And then you're dead. Yeah. Then you're like, I'm inferior and I'm trying to find the secret that somebody who's smarter than I am knows. How can I find that secret? I'll take classes, I'll go to seminars, I'll read instructional books, and I'll try to do what they tell me to do. Yeah. Imagine composing a concerto that way. Imagine mm. composing a jazz fugue that way. Imagine painting in an oil that way. It takes the creativity, the inspiration, really, and kind it, of... It's painting by it numbers. Down. Yeah. It, becomes painting, it becomes painting by numbers. Is that how you... If you wanted to be a great artist, would you go get one of those paint-by-number sets and fill in all the yeah. twos with the sea green and then the ones with the cobalt blue? And was that, was that how you go about it? But that's exactly what it is. You're, everything, every character you write is you. The dog is you, the psycho killer is you, the oversexed nun, whoever the heck it is that you're writing about, however different it is from you, it's exactly you. We're all human beings. It all has to flow through you. 
only have one instrument and you're playing it all through that instrument, it's your instrument. It's you have to you have to have the power and the confidence to know that it's only going to you can only do it when it sounds right to you. Exactly. Um, when you saw that screenplay translate, the first screenplay ever written translated onto film, uh, what was that experience like? Did you have expectations as far as how you wanted it to be shot or anything? Uh, that was a really funny nightmare experience. Um, <laughs> um, the novel that I adapt, my own novel that I adapted to screenplay, yeah, was a World War II story, and the novel was about um, the fact that people were people. So there were three Nazis. One was horrible. One was a really great guy who had been in the German army. He was sort of forced to be in the SS, and one was the interesting guy that was the leader. Was kind of a, a mixture. And then there was this kid who was played by Eric Stoltz, who was captured, um, an American who was captured in the English Channel and knew the secret of D-Day, and he was being held in Vincennes prison by the Germans. And Ed Harris, who was our star, um, was an OSS officer who was of German extraction and spoke perfect German. He was parachuted into France and pretended to be a German officer who'd been sent to take charge of the kid, yeah. trying to get him out before. That was the whole idea of the story. So it's kind of a cool idea, but the, what was going on in the story was that everybody was a human being and the fact that all the labels that we always put on them were turned upside down. But it was the guy that financed it was a guy named Martin Starger, very, very brilliant, very successful TV guy who loved conventional World War II stories. <laughs> so now cut to, uh, it's 1984, it's um, June or July. Um, I've left the law practice. I've been October just left the law practice to do this full-time. I have seven deals waiting for me. I'm so fortunate. And now my first script is being made into a movie with all these wonderful stars, Max von Sydow and Ed Harris and Eric Stoltz, Horst Buchholz, and all these great people. I'm with Berger, Patrick Stewart, you know, from Star Wars. Um, And there I am, I'm flown to Paris. (laughs) <laughs> and it's now 7 in the morning and I'm standing at Vincennes Prison in Paris it's a gorgeous place I got my baguette <laughs> I, got my, I got my notebook and this sweet young woman who's a PA comes to me and says Ron would you like to see the sides for the scene that we're shooting this morning and I said well I've got my script <laughs> she says yeah well that, that, that's your script <laughs> but if you want to see the sides I can give them to you I said well, what are you saying she said, well, that's probably your original draft, right? I said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, you don't, you don't know it's been changed? Mm-hmm. I said, no. No, no one told me that. And I get a few drafts for Jonathan, but no one told me. Yeah, well, you should talk to Jonathan. I'm talking to you, I said to her. She says, I said, how many writers have been on the project? There had been seven writers on the project. Wow. wow. And I had known about any of them. I'd never been officially fired. I was paid everything. There was a lot of money in that day. And everybody had been very nice to me. The director was a wonderful guy. But I guess it was really this producer, Stargate, who I'd never met. So I see the script. She gives me the script. And it's just like, you know, it's terrible saying it's a horrible experience because it's not cancer. My children are healthy and alive. <laughs> I've never fought in a war. You know, I've never had my limbs cut off. And for this to be the for this yeah. to be the worst thing in my life, or to be, have a divorce, I guess, was even worse than this. Um, 
my life was just passing in front of my eyes. It was completely mm. different. It was horrible. And as I'm standing there, just not knowing what to do, I've got two weeks to be here in Paris. It was paid for, and I'm standing looking at this thing. A voice from about up here behind me says, Rod. And I turn around, and I look up in the face of Max von Sydow, who's like my hero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think we, I, think we, I think we did four films together. Ron, hi, I'm Max. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I think you know the dialogue in this morning scene. Maybe not the dialogue that you wrote, yes? I said, yeah, you got that right. So I think maybe you and I, we take a coffee. And then we look at the scene and maybe we put some things down and then maybe I go to Jonathan, what do you think? So I sat with Max and I started rewriting all of the scenes. <laughs> and then by about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and Harris comes and says, Ronnie! Max tells me that you're rewriting the scenes for him. Okay, well, let's, let's have lunch. <laughs> and so I started rewriting Ed Harris's scene. And so I had a great two weeks. Uh, and did the director eventually find well, the director, out? Uh, oh, no, of course, the director was a lovely guy. He was, yeah. he was I think, kind of being hamstrung by the, the studio, by the financiers, by the whatever. Yeah. So a long, long time ago. So I did write a lot of stuff, and a lot of the stuff that I wrote was shot. Some of it was then reshot after I left. <laughs> Every, you know, I only was there for two weeks when I was gone that was over um, it was just a weird experience it was a yeah. weird experience to um, to show you that yeah. it's a collaborative medium and it isn't quite the same as uh, as a dramatist guild or writing a novel yeah. Yeah, a stage play a novel it's really sort of set there for posterity and what well, you write well I mean they can't more. they're not allowed to change it yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be writing I think uh, early next year um the book of a of a stage production based on the novel Jonathan Livingston Siegel. I don't know that. Uh, no. Yeah, Richard Bach. Okay. If you go back and look in the seventies, it's one of the best selling popular fiction books in America. It was called, called uh, Jonathan. Jonathan Livingston. This is a real generational thing, nice. and anyone who's over the age of fifty or fifty five, it was more iconic than. Than Hunger Games or anything, or Twilight, much much bigger, sold much more, much much more iconic, uh, and it was a kind of a hippie era thing, yeah. and they, they were all seagulls. All the characters were seagulls, and and Jonathan was a seagull who learned to do these fantastic flying things, but then the flock exiled him because he was a rebel, and he died and went to sort of seagull to the next stage, where he found these gurus. And it was about eternal life and believing in yourself and loving and giving back to people. It was a very, what would be considered today, a very corny message and just hugely transformative to people at that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and we're going to do a stage production with all the music will be Pink Floyd's music. Wow. David Gilmore. Incredible. Uh, and David Gilmore's David's new album is coming out in a month or so. Believe me, Jonathan Sieg was bigger than Pink Floyd. <laughs> I know, it's really hard to, hard to understand. Um, we're going to get to use his new album, too, but there's two old albums of his that we're going to use. He's going to even write some new stuff for us. And it's all going to be about this tremendous production. We're not going to be in a conventional theater. It's, they're going to build a 65-foot amphitheater for us that, wow. where the audience rotates, and there are all wow. these stage techniques that are now just being used in, in Amsterdam where the actors are stagehands and all the walls transform and transmutate and there's things being shown everywhere. There's this wonderful choreographer, her name is Allie Rose. And if you look on YouTube, you'll see if you ask, look for New York One. 
you'll see that she's got like 50 dancers that are being suspended by rings on their waist. And they're all at different heights in the air. And they're all doing balletic movements, all different from each other, but it, it coalesces into some exquisite thing. And she wants to be part of it. And, you know, it may never come across. The guy that's producing it is, is yeah. Michael Cole, who produced um, uh, all the Spider-Man. Spider-Man mm. stage show. Oh, wow. He's a wonderful guy. They're all great people. And Are you doing it in L.A. or New York? Or? Mark Brickman will be the director, the guy that did all the, all the, all the Pink Floyd concert tours. Okay. And staged everything. Um, yeah. The original thing will be built in New York. Um, if it happens, and you know, like stage things, yeah. it may never come about. It may never happen. i got a contract, but it may never happen. In developments and so, on there. Yeah. Like movies may never happen. But the only reason I even think of it is, under the Dramatist Guild, you can't be changed. Mm. Yeah. No one can change your words. The writer is protected. It's, uh, it's like the moral, the morale in, 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 in Europe. Uh, working Never. with uh, Bob Rafelson and uh, Francis Coppola. So I guess that would be Black Widow and uh, Gardens Stone. Stone, yeah, yeah. Very, very, very good research. And those were the first two real films. Because um, this terrible World War II thing went straight to video. It was just it was, it was sad. It was a fun experience, but it was weird. So um, both Black Widow and Gardens are films that I really, I really enjoy. The story on, on, um, on Black Widow, this woman is a serial killer. Yeah. Um, but she's not a normal kind of serial killer. She, she makes these men fall in love with her, and then she marries them, and she lives with them for a couple of years, and really they're the happiest they've ever been. And then she kills them. Yeah. She could have killed them without marrying them. She could have taken all their money. She could have done a lot of things she didn't do. Deborah Winger is chasing her, and Deborah Winger was a huge, huge star at the time, and she had also been our client. So now we're... We're making the movie, and, and Rafelson comes, came to me and said, the script doesn't say why she does it, why she kills them. I said, that's right. He says, why does she? I said, it's none of your business. <laughs> he said, why is that? I said, because once you give some psychological justification for it, then it's psychobabble and oh so she just does that because the writer said that this happened to her and you and know it's and kind then, of exposition and everything and every, well yeah. that's just it's expositional we can do it really fast yeah. it's just suddenly you're giving an excuse a reason for something which of course is artificial because it's a fictional story so we've created a great little excuse for her to do anything we wanted to do and there's no mystery to it and there's no wondering and everything just dies in my opinion so he agrees now we're three days from shooting and Teresa who's just the most wonderful lady and she brought all eight drafts with her every day and she'd pull out something and she was just at the rehearsal table she was fabulous Bob comes to me and says you know Teresa needs to know why she does it she just can't do the role she doesn't know why she kills them so I said this we got a problem he said she will never tell me she will never tell anybody she just needs to hear it from you and then that's it I said, okay. <laughs> so she and I go to coffee, and I had never thought about it before. I didn't want to know. Because I think any idea you have reduces it to simply, what was she was raped, she was, I mean, you know, what? Why would somebody be a serial killer? Only a man, only in that way. So I invented it while I was sitting with her. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I said, you were, your, your mother was cold and unfeeling, you were daddy's girl. He died of cancer when you were eight years old. And you never forgave him for abandoning you. And now when you fall in love with someone, you will take charge of the leaving. They will, they will never leave you. You will leave them. 
but it's only for people you love, so you're only working it out with someone that you can marry and care about and be good to, in the, modeling the relationship with your father. She said, great. I got it. <laughs> we never told anybody. <laughs> so it's really something of uh, sometimes actors or anybody, they just need something to kind of latch on to, in a sense, to... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I have much more affinity for actors. I feel what I do is much closer to acting than directing. Yeah. Um, when we did uh, When a Man Loves a Woman, Meg Ryan and I had a conversation. She said, you know, Luis Mangotti, I'm going to be doing another film with, actually. He's a great director. He's a wonderful guy. She said, but sometimes I feel like, you know, Luis will just send me a talk to you about it because you have... I said, well, you know, only, only you and I ever have to be Alice Green. You and I both have to be Alice Green. And Luis doesn't. He's the conductor. Yeah. He has to see Alice Green and know where she fits and, and so forth. But he knows what she does as an observer a different way. You and I, it's our DNA. We're the same person. We know what we would do in that moment. Yeah. Because as a director, too, you're looking at all of these different elements, production design, cinematography, sound, editing, everything is, you're sort of looking at everything from a distance, in a sense. Whereas a writer... You are, you're you are, and you're, and you're fractured in that way. I think the directors who are writers can, can transcend that, that fracturing and can do can also be the writer that has to be Alice Green. I think directors who haven't written yeah. just have a different perspective. They, they, they feel that, and perhaps correctly, that objectivity and, and not being Alice Green, being able to look at Alice Green and look at everybody and see her from the outside and not be subjectively caught up in it yeah. um, could be better. And it's certainly different. How um after your first movie, where you had that experience where they were rewriting and you showed up with the film. Oh, the terrible movie. Yeah, the t- <laughs> how, how did it change in the future when you were on set? Like you said later, you're like, well, I can't be rewriting the you know, contract know, later. Well, only. Only. It was only in that contract because I wrote it on spec. Yeah. So I wasn't writing for no studio would ever let you put that in a contract. Yeah. But I wrote it on spec, so when I sold it to a studio, I said, do you want to buy this script? So well, you can buy it. <laughs> um... So, I'm sorry, the, so the question so is... how did it change your experience when you would go to set in the future? Like, yeah, and you know, you don't get to or? go to set very often. Most yeah. writers are not really invited to set or on <laughs> set, and frankly, I've got a lot to do, and it's really fun being on set, and you can contribute. But if the director doesn't really want you there, want you to contribute like the Weiss did, yeah. or Wayne Wang did in the... In, but Forrest Whitaker did a little bit. But, but most times, they don't even want you around. Mm-hmm. So... Some of the most interesting sets would be in sets where I wasn't really the writer. I did I wrote did some rewriting on this film called Always for for Stephen for Spielberg, and um, I just done a very little bit of writing on it, and I was not the writer of the film at all. But we were friendly at that time, and and um, and being on the set with him and standing at the monitor and having him just tell you stuff. One of the most fascinating memories. I'm sure it doesn't sound much like as a story or to other people that, that I can. My whole film experience is standing with Stephen at the monitor, and Rick Dreyfus is doing this scene, and he's doing it great. And Stephen points to this thing, and he says, "You know, if Rick would step back like about six inches, the entire field of vision would be different. We would see." And he just starts to describe to me what the shot would look like in that tiny little thing. And I can see Zig's thing. I'm like, God, how did he realize that? But he's absolutely <laughs> right. Now what are you going to do? Because I said, you're going to cut and make him cut. No, 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 don't make him cut. And he's, the actor's doing this great job, and it goes on, 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 it's over. 
And, you know, Stephen doesn't call cut or, 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 or roll it. The, the AD does for him usually. He just stands the line, kind of his own truth. Yeah. So when it's over, you know, Rick looks around and, and uh, since it's out, that was amazing. That was awesome. That was incredible. Can I just can I just get one more? And you know, maybe this time, like, uh, step back like six inches. Like he's just thinking of it at the time that he said it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So do you want this or this? It's like you're doing great. Just give me whatever you want to give me. It's spectacular. It's fantastic. And it was. And it was great. And yes, the whole shot looked different. <laughs> <laughs> I just said this is why I'm I'm not a director. You know, I would love to direct actors. I'd love to work with actors, and I have a chance to work with actors. But that kind of technical stuff. That kind of genius of what it looks like. You know, I watch the I watch the Nick on on television, and and when Soderbergh directs it, oh, it's incredible. It, I, it doesn't yeah. look like when anybody else directs it. You know, someone like Francis Coppola, who also is a screenwriter. Uh, what was oh, it like it's working? Academy Award winning genius. Yeah. Well, you know, we 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 he he had me stay at his house for like a week or two up in the Napa Valley. Yeah. Which turned me on to the Napa Valley, and I bought a home in the Napa Valley, and we had a home in the Napa Valley for like 15 years. Mm off of how much I loved it from that experience. And we did wrote this thing together, and he was very, very open and giving and wonderful, and then every night he'd cook dinner and he'd be pounding with veal, and he's just a spectacular guy. I knew him slightly from the... I knew him more than slightly from the lost. Gracious, brilliant beyond compare, innovative, entrepreneurial, like the Steve Jobs, I mean, all this stuff about American Zoetrope, his company... Foreign sales, finance, advances, financing films. It was like the pioneer of all of that. Yeah. And the most, most fearless guy. This is such he's, like so he's so written. collaborative while so, we're working yeah. together. So I said, so can I be on the set? He said, no, 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 I don't want you on the set. He said, you know, I'm a writer too. I said, yeah, I noticed. He said, um, I don't, if you think that you're going to reach out there from Malibu, I said, I don't live in Malibu, man, I can't afford that. He says, and your cold, dead hand is going to grab the script and control it. He said, forget that. <laughs> he was laughing, but he rewrote it the way he wanted to rewrite it, of course. I wasn't around. I had nothing to do with it. Um, and I, I saw dailies. <laughs> I thought he did a great job. <laughs> and then, uh, so on, on Rain Man, yeah, film because you had multiple directors attached at different points. Four. Uh, there were four. I think what Martin Brest was the original. Marty Brest was the original guy. I was brought on. The, the original writer had done a couple of drafts. Very uh, Morrow, yeah. nice man. Done a couple of drafts, and they they wanted to make the movie, and Dustin and Tom were already on it, um, but they do, they wanted a new writer. So I was brought on by Roger Birnbaum, who was then at, at MGMUA, and a good friend, and um, I had the chicken pox. My chicken pox altered the course of that film enormously because Dustin's wife is pregnant, and Marty's wife was pregnant, mm. so I couldn't be in the room with anybody. So I'm in bed upstairs in my home, my older, my older home, and I'm on the phone with Marty every day. And I'm writing, and so he says, you know, the actors want to talk to you. I had never met Tom before, and I think I met Dustin once with casually. And they want to make their input, but, you know, we have to do that. I said, oh, I'd love to do that. So now we're on a big conference call. And Dustin Hoffman says in the conference call, Ronnie, you know, the thing about it is, he's, because he's, at that point he wasn't autistic. He was, he was retarded. He was the opposite character. He was lovable and sweet. And he held everybody's hand all the time. But he didn't have any of that brilliance of, you know, counting the two things. Yes, he did. Oh, no, that. he was a savant. Oh, that was, okay. That was the idea. He was a savant. Yeah. 
because he was modeled after this guy named Kim Peek, who Barry Morrow knew, who was, an, who was a retarded savant. Had all that stuff. I mean, we invented a lot of it, but that was the same idea. But he was lovable and sweet and wanted to be your puppy dog. And, and Dustin says, you know, there's no conflict, there's no edge. I mean, it's like a love story, but you know he's going to fall in love with me sooner or later because I'm such an adorable guy. What if I had, like, autism or something where I was really like a prick and it was really difficult and I was really, you know, and nobody could possibly like me, but then somehow they'd fall in love. I said, well, that's pretty interesting. And, you know, I said, somebody think it's really different. I said, you know, I said, well, I just, you know, just kind of think about it. So then they're off the phone and I'm on the phone with the director. And I say, um, Marty, you know, that thing that Dustin said about, I said, yeah, yeah, kid, you're doing great. Just, you know. Just keep going. I'll deal with the actors. Yeah. I said, well, I've only met him like once before. And I know you have more experience. But I've had experience as a lawyer with, with actors more than I have as a... And when you hear a big star like that say something like that, one thing, I think he really wants it. I think he really thinks it's important. He said it really politely. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he really means it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take care of it. But thank you. It's good. You do. Just keep going. My chicken pox is over. Um, two weeks later, Martin Brest leaves the project, Creative Differences. I fly to Paris with my family for the summer. That's when I had money. Those are the good old days. <laughs> and we're living in Paris for the summer. My kids are real little. And we're living in the, in the, in the Marais, I guess it was. And... Um, I get this call from Mike Ovitz, who was my agent at the time. You know who he was? Oh, he also repped, I think, even Dustin and Tom Every, Cruise. Everybody. Time. Yeah. yeah. He, he was, was the power agent. He was the most the powerful agent yeah. there ever was. And um, he said, Steven Spielberg wants to direct Rain Man. And he wants you to write it. When can you come back here? I said, oh, Mike, you're not going to like this answer. I'm here on vacation with my family and I'm not leaving my wife and my kids and I'm not making them come back so it's going to be two more weeks okay you're sure? I said yeah I mean when, yeah I'm sure it was fine no I never, never got any grief about it I showed up I had never met Steven Spielberg before who is in my view he was commenting on his directorial ability which is he doesn't need my comment as a guy to talk to and work with sweet and wonderful and collaborative and creative and humble and energetic and enthusiastic and as imaginative a guy to work with. Anybody that ever has a chance to, as a writer to work with him and create something with him, it's the experience you would never forget. So I'd never met him before. I'm reading in the office, you know, and he's a great man and he's so humble and sweet. And he says, so here's the first thing after he says hello. Dustin Hoffman is right and you're wrong. Do you know why? I said, well, sure. He, he told me that it's, you know, no conflict and blah, blah, blah. He said, well, it's a love story. Isn't every love story about the obstacle? There's no obstacle. Now there'll be an obstacle. Are you on board? I said, yeah, I like it. <laughs> so we spend that summer on Broad Beach Road in, in Stephen's beach house. And Dustin and Tom are there every day. So nobody ever gets experience like this. I mean, it's just me and these three guys. And it's 1980. Eight, seven or eight. Yeah. And um, that's like, the, 
you're saying to yourself, this will never happen again, so what am I supposed to die now? <laughs> I mean, what? When you um, have the, uh... It was an amazing, amazing, amazing experience because we were all looking at... Remember, this was before there were a lot of films. There was no bunch of Spectrum films. There wasn't Asperger's. There wasn't a thousand films about autism. And we were all talking about how autistic we were. And, of course, Dustin and, and Steve and I are Jewish. And, of course, Tom isn't. So Dustin and Steve and I are always talking about our autism and how compulsive we are and how weird we are. And we're all sharing stories. And Tom's like, no. It's not. <laughs> so funny. And we're, we're flying in guys, because we don't use Kim Peek. We're flying in a guy named, named um, Kevin Geiger. His brother is Peter Geiger, who's the real model that we used. And he's talking to us like his brother talks, because Kevin's an actor. Yeah. And, 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 and he's saying, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to be battleless, you know, I'm definitely going to be, you know, he, just, he talks, he had that sort of that rhythm that we, and Dustin and I would walk on the beach and we'd talk to each other like that, we'd kind of get the rhythm. And so the three of us were doing great. Cruz was like the sweetest, nicest man. These are just nicest, such wonderful people. And Stephen had a maid, you know, was this a very attractive young Latina maid who just, every time she would see Tom, she would just, uh-huh. you know. Her knees would just turn to jelly, and Tom would call her in the room and say something, be nice to her, and whatever. <clears throat> so, the one moment that I can remember, and I, I'm sure he wouldn't, <clears throat> is he would say, you know, you're doing all this stuff, but you guys being autistic and everything, and, you know, what do we got for me? What do we got for, for, for Charlie Babbitt? Uh, and I said, well, I tell this thing to the people that I work with, which is a cliché that men are better than women and men are, women rather much better than men and women are more interesting in life and in film than men and so I always write for female lead where I can um, it's unusual for me a story that's all about men with no real <clears throat> I wrote a lot of for, for Valeria Galino's character and I thought she was a wonderful character <clears throat> she's a great actress too I said but the reason for it is that generally men are result oriented they want to sleep with the girl, win the money, get close the deal, yeah. win the game. They want to win. And they don't want to know who they really are if it's going to screw them up. They don't want to be scared. They don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to be ashamed. They don't want to be guilty. They don't want to be insecure. Women, almost every woman I ever got to know, they have to know who they are. They're process-oriented. And it will totally screw them up, and they will get... They will break up with the guy they love, and they will fail, and they will whatever. But but they they have to know what they're really feeling. So they have an inner life. They are in touch with their inner life. And therefore, Tom, that is going to be your journey. And he actually said the phrase, I mean, i got to become a girl. I said, you have to find your inner life. You have to, your character has to understand that it isn't just that he's selfish, and it isn't just... He's got to be nicer. It isn't just that he doesn't love his brother. That's the obvious stuff that everybody says, well, that's what the journey of the movie. No. The journey of the movie is finding yourself, not finding your brother. Not being a nicer guy. Turns out you will be a nicer guy when you find yourself, because your character is a nice guy. He didn't have to be, but he is. Find yourself. Whatever the cost. That's what, you, that's, that's what we're doing here. And he loved it, and he took it to heart. And to me, it's as good a performance... That, that performance of his and the one right after for, for Oliver Stone and Born on the Fourth of July, yeah. I thought those were the two really great, great, great performances of Tom. Yeah. 
I always like him. I always think he's good. Uh, I think those are the most dynamic characters he's ever really played in movies. Rain Man and Born in the Fourth of July. That's interesting. And Meg Ryan, I thought in, 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 in Man's Woman, I thought it was the best thing she ever did. So the ending of Rain Man, I know during the production yes. of Rain Man there was a writer's strike, so there really yes. wasn't a lot of... Uh, no, what happened was I had, to, I had to write these yellow pages, the last yellow pages, yeah. and put them... On, I had to drive to Bel Air and put them under a rock on Barry Levinson's doorstep at like 6 in the morning. This was like the first day of the strike. It was going to be. The strike was going to start like at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or whatever. I actually got them pages there before. It was a super straight arrow about the strike and didn't communicate with Barry or anybody during the film or whatever. And and the ending ending was was different. Um, And there'd been a thousand endings discussed with all the directors. And um, I was really originally a proponent of of a couple of them being together. And and Stephen really didn't want a happy ending, artificially happy ending. And I said, but the thing is, my sister was my consultant. Her name is Diane Bass, and she's a psychiatric social worker who worked at the NPI at Nurse Psychiatric Institute at UCLA. And she had been my my main source of understanding about this and in the real world he would have kept Rain Man of course a brother now that had become that loving and that caring and that and that competent would have kept him at, at, at home and he wouldn't have had to go back to the institution so it was almost kind of a forced tragedy that was a, earlier the ending that I wrote that didn't get filmed was and do you know what it is then? you've heard it? Uh, well I, I well I think it may have been where Dustin Hoffman is finally commutative with, uh, he sort of snaps out of his autism no, in a sense? No, That's, okay. no. He doesn't change character at all. It's quite to the contrary. He's standing on the, on the train and in my version Valeria Galino is, is there with Charlie. She's, she's come back to Charlie and they're like a couple. So that was a love story that was more in my script than in the film. I think they sort of like write it off in the film, like they, you see her one last time, and then it's like kind of yeah. But yeah. she's not really in his life, but I wanted her in his life because I thought that that was part of what he'd earned was having a terrific woman in his life. So, in my version of it, um, when Dustin starts doing that, uh, Charlie Babbitt, my main man, my main man, my main man, Charlie Babbitt, he starts, but he gets really nervous and really scared because the train starts and it's going to be leaving. As the train starts to go. He breaks down more and just gets really, he's really freaking out because he's going to leave Charlie. And as the train starts to pull out, Charlie looks at Valeria Galino and she just goes like that. And he grabs the train and he jumps on the train and the train goes out and it's carrying Tom Cruise away with him. And when I pitched that to Barry, he said, but, but so what? They're going back to the institution. I said, oh yeah, he's going back to the institution. He still allowed to go visit him anyway. It really isn't changing anything. He says, you just want a happy ending. I said, well, I want an ending that's earned. And, and I think the ending that's earned is the thing that makes you walk out of the theater saying, he will be in this guy's life. The uplift of the connection yeah. without the lie that, that it's changed anybody. Because one guy has changed. And, the, and what that connection means to him, concretizing that in the film... I'd go out with a big rush instead of this very sad, wistful, great music and Tom's expression and 
knowing that what Tom's feeling everything, he did a great job in the scene, and the train pulls away, I didn't win that one. <laughs> <laughs> Film did okay without me. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's brilliant. And then you won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. So now we get to the Oscars. Um, my, my father, who was this wonderful, wonderful man, had cancer. And he'd had it for a couple of years. And he's at the Oscars, but they won't, they won't let the family sit down, you know, on the floor with the nominees. So they're up, it was the old Toronto Auditorium, there's like, I don't know how high up he is, I don't know how he made it up the stairs, because he was, re- was really very weak. And what was going on among us all is, we never thought that we were going to win, the writers were going to win, because we hadn't won any of the other awards, Writers Guild Award, everything else had gone to either Bull Durham or, um, um, it's another picture, uh, Running on Empty. So we didn't think we were going to win. But we were all upset that Tom wasn't nominated. Dustin was upset that Tom wasn't nominated. Because Tom's character is what really drove the movie. Dustin was spectacular. And obviously that kind of role was so visible and so charming and so wonderful. And he deserved everything he got. We were all upset for Tom. And there were so many technical nominations, you know, the editors and everybody. So now we're all sitting there. And of course, Tom wasn't there because he wasn't he wasn't sitting with us because he wasn't nominated. We thought we would see him at the party or whatever. He might have even been presenting an award, so he might have been there. I'd forgotten that. So at that point, as I said, I was I was very friendly with Stephen at that time. I hadn't seen him in many many years, but we were we were working together at that time. And his then wife, Amy Irving, was a fabulous woman, a wonderful actress. And she and I had a project we tried to get on that we never got on. And I'm at their house. And she comes back, because she's going to be an Oscar presenter, and she said, I switched with Michelle Pfeiffer, because Michelle wants, thinks that Christopher Hampton's going to win for Dangerous Liaisons, and so she wanted to be able to present Chris with his award. Yeah. So he's getting adaptation, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm taking the original, she said. Mm-hmm. They, were, they originally had switched them. Yeah. And so I'm going to be able to give you your award. <laughs> and Stephen said, don't look so happy about it, because one of my... Opponents was his sister, <laughs> Annie Spielberg, who wrote Big, which was a great script and a great film. So we're all laughing at everything. Now we go to the Oscars, and you're sitting, and it's we're on one side, and the shrine has a huge stage, but there's this big screen in front of us, so they're all look 80 feet high. So I'm looking at the screen, not the people. And it comes time for our award, and no one thinks we're going to get it. We don't think we're going to get it at all. We're just wondering who's going to get it. And I'm sitting with John Cleese, who did A Fish Called Wanda. And so we were traveling like the world. We were in London for the Baftas and Rome for the Donatellos. And yeah. I always got, well, sitting next to him. And he's just the funniest guy that ever lived. And he's... So now Amy, op- Amy, Amy Irving opens up the envelope. <laughs> eyes light up. Mm. And I, this is so true story, stand up. I stood up. I stood up in my seat. Before your name was ever called. Before any names yeah. were called. And in that split second that I was standing up, I looked down at my wife, who was sitting on my right, and she was looking up at me like, what the <laughs> are you doing? <laughs> it all happened so fast, and when I saw her face, in my mind I said, of course, it's Annie. It's her sister-in-law that won, who she adores, who's a great person. Yeah. Of course that's why she's happy. Yeah. And then I heard my name. Oh my gosh. <laughs> As I was edging out, John Cleese said, 
confidence. That's fantastic. Let's do it. <laughs> Stupidity. <laughs> but, uh, I get the award. I walk off stage. And the reason I even thought of the story was we were talking about Tom. Yeah. And he, the first person who got to me, thank you, when I walked off stage was Tom. And he was just there. And I didn't know him well at all. I mean, we weren't like friends, but I mean, we worked together that summer. And I really admired him. And he gave me that, that famous grin that he has. And he, he picked me up put his arms around me and he lifted me off the ground and he spun me around <laughs> right in the wings as the first person that I saw what a great he was so happy for everybody else yeah. yeah very giving actor just you know it's, yeah. yeah just a great great guy and then you go through this business and you hear stories about Stephen or, or Tom and you hear people say bad things about them and and I'm sure it does hurt people to hear those things. People, I'm sure they all say, I don't listen to that stuff, and who cares, and nobody knows. And it's a shame, because everybody thinks it's a business of snakes and terrible people. And there are, really, there are a lot of bad people in the business, for sure. There's a lot of really wonderful people. Yeah. It's about finding those right people to work with. And, uh, if, you, if, you, if you have the ability to choose who you're working with, yeah. and now I do a little bit, particularly in independent film and television and so forth, um, and I'm working with a lot of great people now. Uh, so... From what I've heard, you have sort of an interesting uh, working style where you handwrite uh, all of your scripts before you ever type them out. Is that true? Well, I guess there's no more hand. I guess all the handwritten pages are now. Yeah, darn it, because they were all typed last night by, by Sue. So it's this paper. On legal pad uh, paper. Not pad. Well, it's the paper. It's not be loose. Yeah. You can't write on the pad, but it's this paper. And when you go, I start with this pencil. I start writing the next scene and then it gets faxed to Sue who lives in Northern California and she types it that's sure. it sends it back to us typed right. and, but you start first uh, of course probably with an outline do you uh, do you like to outline oh it's way more complicated or... than that yeah it's way more complicated than that you know I have a team a development team that works with me you know that yeah you have sort of a, a group of people that the, the three, are there are three people who will be here at 930 and... <laughs> 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 they're a creative team um and they do a lot of things. Um, and, for example, the first thing we're going to do this morning is they're going to comment on what I wrote over the weekend. And one of them, the one I'm really grateful to, wrote her, I didn't like this line, how about this? I didn't like this line, how about this? I didn't like this line, how about this? And the other two didn't write anything. So they're, they're in trouble. Um, and we go over stuff, and I listen to what they thought, and particularly because yeah. this is a comedy, and I, I'm not funny, and I don't write comedy well, and I'm always terribly frightened when I'm writing comedy that it's, it's funny to me, and it will, and nobody else will think it's funny. Drama, I have a lot of confidence. To comedy, I have no confidence. Um, the process is, it's different. There's a, there's a, there's a, a of course, it might be an original, it might be an adaptation. The adaptation, of course, we all read the book, and then they'll do a beat sheet on the book so that I also have the book in 30 pages of what the essence of every scene, every every page is, so I can find things more easily. Yeah. Um, originals, of course, is harder. And there, so the first step of the process is what we call matrixing, which you would really call brainstorming. Um, and I just talk. We all talk, but I'm doing most of the talking. Um, and they're typing like crazy. Um, 
and you try, I try in this part of the process to be very free form and very disorganized. Not to force it into whatever. Just whatever occurs to us, whatever we are talking about, just do it, do it, do it. Retrieval is a problem. I'm trying to give temporary numbers to different kinds of ideas so we can find them again because it can get very voluminous. Then there'll come a day when I think, okay, I can't stand it anymore. I have to outline. Um, and outline I do alone at home on a weekend, and I take three pieces of paper and um, first, second, and third act, and I write down all the scenes of the movie with a number. And then we go back and all the matrix scene we've done, and we put numbers to all the ideas there that might be useful in the script. Might, might not. So the blocking book begins. Blocking book looks like uh, this. Wow. All these wow. notes, paper clips, color coding, stuff. Um, it begins with all the matrixing stuff that's there. It's just like, you may as well not waste that. That was your original ideas. So you're taking sort of a, a scene from uh, your beat sheet or outline and applying those original brainstorming ideas. And let's let's, let's look at it as an original rather than, a, rather than an adaptation yeah. for the moment. In an original, I'm just totally, just totally rambling around. And they'll respond, they'll throw in ideas too, but it's basically more importantly than for their contribution or even their feedback... Is just their presence, yeah. just someone to talk to. Because you know, I used to do it alone, pacing around in the in the in the, in the, in the park, and then trying to write down my thoughts. And boy, the, the time between when you're thinking them and when you're writing them down, and how much you can write down, you're losing and a that huge portion. Still the way, and it's not. Yes, and you're and you're was. yes, and you've lost six thoughts that you couldn't remember. It was it's just horrible, it's very frustrating. Um, and with them, they're getting everything, and they're just fabulous. So. Um, now though so the matrix thing is like a brainstorming is very awkward and I, and I do less of it than I used to and I probably I wish I could do more I just am too impatient I can't force myself to spend much time on it then I outline and page budget to the half page now I budget page budget the tenths of a page but I think what I think it would take to do that scene now we block this is the most important part of it. that's this book is the blocking book blocking is pre-writing and you can do it on you don't have anybody working for you, which I didn't for 10 years, and most writers don't. They should. If they can afford it. They should have somebody working with them, absolutely. Then you're just doing it on your own. But the idea is you're looking at all the number ones that you've collected from what you thought before, and now you just think about everything that could go in that scene, but you're not writing the scene. You are generating notes about things that might go in the scene. Temp track dialogue. And she walks in the room and you just start riffing dialogue. Now you can have a recorder if you're alone, or you can stop and write it down if you're alone, or you can type it if you're alone, or if you hire someone that's a good typist, they're they're getting it as you're riffing it. No, nah, you know, okay, maybe say that, okay, you know, but then maybe instead of that, it's this, and then maybe it's in the maybe it's on the roof. No, maybe she comes to him in the bar. Maybe it's this, and you just whatever you want to say. You don't have to. It doesn't have to be right because you're not really writing it yet. So you're very, very free, and you amass all those notes, and you keep going, 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 and then you have like, oh, let's go back, let's go back to scene 12. I think I wanted to say that I had, I had a son, but I gave him up to my ex-husband in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, and then when you're all done with the blocking book, and you've changed your outline a bunch of times already from things that you've learned that you want to do, that's when you write. 
writing, I do, I used to do completely alone. Um, and now I find that I like to write with them here, the ones that will sit here. The two younger ones will sit here, the senior one won't. She has two babies. She just, if you're writing, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. Um, and, um, and I pass them the pages, and they will comment while I'm in the process, and that can be very helpful. Because that's when you really want to rethink it right then. Almost it's annoying to sit down this morning and go back and revisit stuff that I liked because I'm not getting the comments till now, but it's important. I mean, you know, it was the weekend. We didn't work on the weekend. We worked, but we worked separately, so. Um, So really, once you start writing a sort of an official script page, you you put in a lot of research, a lot of time. Oh, my God, yes. Prepping that, what that moment will be. So it's not like a mystery when you turn on. There's never, it's not even close to a blank page. I take all the ones, you know, all the things that say number one on the top, and, and I read all of those. Sometimes the scene falls right out of the blocking, like you're just writing the blocking. Sometimes it's completely different. But you're always starting with something, so you're always excited to do it, can't wait to do it. The writing process is very fast because the thinking is, has gone before, and that's also useful because, because you want to be, you want to channel the characters. You want to be there. You want to be them and be there and let it happen. Yeah. And the more prepared you are, the better that is. I mean, improv doesn't come out of not knowing what you know what you're going to do. Improv comes from being so steeped in what you want to do that now you can just forget about it and let it go, and there'll be truth coming out no matter what because you you are you are that guy. Once you get a, a first draft uh, down, uh, what's your rewriting process like? Do you like to go through a lot of drafts, or do you? Is there a way that you can kind of fine-tune it so you know that it's sort of within what you think is like your best quality work, in a sense? No. Um, rewriting is something, of course, there'll be rewriting required by whoever you're working for, but you seem just be, I mean, before I turn the first yeah, draft like in. Yeah, personal Before way I turn of, the first draft in. Yeah. Never. Um, the rewriting happens during the piece. During the piece. But I don't go back and look at it when it's, when the last scene is done, it's done. I don't go if I don't have anything bothering me, like you know, thing on scene sixteen. I'd never really been quite happy, but if you don't have that, yeah, just turn it in. Don't. The biggest mistake young writers make is that they keep rewriting the same script three hundred times, pretending they're making it better, but what they're really doing is avoiding writing the next thing. So what I always used to do when I was a beginner, and I, what I recommend people do, but of course I have to do because I got sixteen projects, is always be developing at least one thing while you're writing the thing you're writing. So I would go be in the park for example, before I had my any, anybody working for me. And I would be at the park at 7 o'clock in the morning. And let's say from 7 to 2 or 7 to something like that, I'd be writing on the script I'm writing on. Then from like 2 to 5, I would put that away and just be brainstorming the next one. So I actually had this ritual that when I, when I wrote Fade to Black, Roll End Credits... I would take that notebook and put it over here, and I had this one waiting for the first scene. Immediately, so you're like jumping in. I mean, in less uh, than 60, if you were in 30 seconds. I mean, <laughs> that, was the, that was the idea of it. Yeah. The idea of it was to immediately take the book and say, exterior beach day. I mean, I know more than that. I mean, I, I know more than that, but the, I haven't yet gone through the blocking to see, but just it started. Okay, now I'm going to read all the number ones, and now I'm going to start writing it in pencil right then. 
so that I'm already writing it. Because if you don't, you'll never get started. <laughs> there's, there's a tremendous fear. There's a tremendous procrastination. A tremendous fear. And everything that you do has to be playing to your own psychology. <clears throat> all that pre-work, all that pre-writing prevents me, at least, from having writer's block. Having people to talk to and hearing what they say about it. Working in a hotel five days a week so they have the ambiance of, I like cars and Carla and people bringing me coffee and kids playing and dogs barking. So and, you're not isolated off in a room somewhere where right. you're kind of... Yeah. Well, I, I don't like writing indoors at all. And so at home, unless it's really bad weather, I'm outside in the weekend in the yard with the dog and I have a nice yard. Yeah. And, you know, and so I'm out there with all the trees and everything. I'm writing. So it was, it was interesting, uh, well, there's a few articles I wrote about your process, that I read about your process, um, as well as you said you work on multiple scripts at one time. So oh, my could, God, yeah. But all different stages in different ways. So you could possibly do like an hour on one script, and then the next hour would be on another, and so on and so forth uh, throughout the day. Oh, well, absolutely. Um, but but it's, all in different, it's all in different ways. Yeah. Um, the... So, for example, today, we'll be looking at dialogue on The Next Girl, this comedy. Then, then we're expecting to get an offer on um, our pilot for Alcon that's called Ice. We're hoping to get an offer from um, a distributor today, tomorrow, actually. And so my team and I will be sitting next and trying to develop a shopping list of... What, we, what ideas we're going to need to put together, and my partner, Vince Gerardis, is on vacation, partner on this project, who knows the diamond, is about the diamond business, who knows, was in the diamond business. Yeah. He's the exec producer of Game of Thrones, by the way, Vince. Oh, wow. Very cool. Um, and he's in Paris with his girlfriend for three weeks. Uh, but I want him to give me a shopping list of certain plots in the diamond business, certain scams that he knows about or tricks that he's seen in terms of how you cut a diamond and change its value and mask its value and mm-hmm. negotiate and stuff, which is... One of the things that I can't invent with the verisimilitude that he can. Um, and everything we want to pull together, going to create a list of that. Then when we've done that, we're going to go to China Boy, which is a script that I will be writing that we're in the blocking process of and we're sort of halfway through the second act. And it's hard because it's a book, and it's an exquisitely written book by this great writer, Gus Lee. So instead of making it all up myself, we, we then we have... We have all of the pages of the book that relate to the scene that I want to write in my outline there. So it's so now we're going to block scene 43 at the top of today's work, and it's two, pages 219 to 246. So we kind of reread those pages together, and the problem is that his writing is so great that I keep wanting to use more stuff of his, and right now we're like 20 pages over budget. So we're going to wind up with this draft looking, when, when I write the last line, it's going to be 160 pages instead of 120 pages, 130 pages. And before I would ever show it to Gus, I have to. And so we've decided, rather than censor ourselves right now, let's just let it rip, because it's not a studio, it's just it's an individual. And, um, and then we'll cut it down after we see the whole thing. Is that something that's hard to predict when you're uh, prepping to write, uh, knowing how many pages it's going to turn out? I mean, do you sometimes aim I'm very for good at 10, it. but then it could go to 150 or... Well, the point is, if you've page budgeted every scene, you know how you're doing. Yeah. And when you're starting to go over, you can do something about it if you want to. 
I find increasingly that I don't want to, that I just am confident enough that I just say, you know what, let's not dial it back so hard right now. Let's let's let it go. Let's see where it's at, and then look at the full thing and see how far, much you want to dial back and throw throw scenes out or trim within scenes or whatever. It's more work that way actually, but sometimes you feel like you're going to get better better stuff. But most of the time. And sort of if I'm working the deadline or anything, I'm, I'm sort of cognizant of not going too far over the budget. Um, comedy, again, it's really easy to go over budget because, because you get on a run and, and it's kind of good to keep going back and forth with each other. And so it just gets longer. When you take a rewriting job or sort of a yeah. script doctoring job, sure. how is that process different from when you're writing something from scratch, whether it be from a novel or an original uh, screenplay? Um... It's a lot easier um, because you've you've got something that you're starting from, and you know what you think it needs, and you've talked to the director, the producer, whoever, studio executive, whoever, whoever's hired you, and you've got a good understanding with them of what it does and doesn't need because you've been able to be very specific. Um, and I really love doing that. I'd like to do even more of that. It's a lot of fun. Um, and I always wind up doing more than I thought I would do because, because you do want a certain continuity of voice. And I have a very particular voice. And, and you don't want to sound too different. So you kind of wind up sort of... And then people say, oh, you know, the... And I, and I don't say it. You know, if I'm a first writer, someone else will read dialogue. Like there's this movie coming out, 130 Train. Oh, is that uh, Chris Evans? It's Chris Evans first directing, and yeah. that's uh, Jennifer Smoka, writing one of my writing partners, and I wrote the wrote that script. But then he had a couple of buddies of his rewrite it, and I've seen the rewrite, and they've re- they've left a lot of our stuff. I was amazed how much was left, but they changed a lot too, because what they think is funny is different from what I think is funny, and what Chris thinks is funny. seriously. I mean, you know, yeah. and what they think is cooler and hipper. And I'm a real old guy, and um, my writing partner is a younger woman, so. She's a little hipper than I am. A lot hipper than I am. Um, and also, you want the voice to be kind of consistent, and you'll have a callback. She'll, in the new dialogue, she says something in scene on page 32, and now it would be great if she says it three more times because it's a runner that means something to the couple. So, of course, it's going to keep filtering it through. The last guy in has got his fingerprints on it, and I love being the last guy in. <laughs> Uh, so I was just going to, uh, I just wanted to kind of ask you about my best friend's wedding, and then we kind of, you know, wrap up uh, sure. some things. So that was, interestingly enough, it was based on a, a magazine article that I guess you had found, or a newspaper article. Is that true? About sort of the one that got away? Well, it was based on a few things. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it began with a wonderful agent, Karen Sage, who was one of my agents at CA at the time, and they used to come to my home. Um, one morning a week or every two weeks, something like that, and we'd have breakfast and they'd have ideas. And she had found that article that you're talking about. It wasn't anything about getting the guy back or going to a wedding or anything. It was just this woman read that this guy that she could have married, she thinks, in the day, and that she turned away, is now getting married to somebody, and she wondered if she'd made a mistake. Yeah. And if I handled it differently, my life would be different. And the women agents at the table were saying, boy, every woman knows that feeling. Everybody knows there's always the guy that got away that you could have had. It's more not so much the guy that you weren't good enough for, that rejected you. Those, that's different. 
but the guy that you think you could have you could have had if you'd wanted to, but you didn't really want to, that's the guy that you're wondering about. So there was that. I didn't do anything right away with that. Then, then I I recalled a wedding in Chicago that I went to with my good friend David Brenner, who's an Academy Award-winning film editor. Um, we actually get to work together on what dreams may come, Robert, the Robin Williams film. Oh, that's a great film, by the way. Thank you. I really enjoy it. And working with him. Visually, it's stunning. It's uh, Vincent Ward, yeah. yeah. And talk about nice people. I mean, you can't be nicer than Robin Williams. The most generous, sweet, so never on. Everybody said, you know, you guys always on funny. Absolutely not. Sweet and decent wanting to help you and ask questions and humble like he was a big difference to work with me. I mean, it was just ridiculous. It was like so Cuba Gooding the same. Just the yeah. greatest, greatest, greatest people. Did he uh, love to collaborate with a writer, Robin Williams? He was very... Uh... You know, of course he did, but he was so respectful. Now, of yeah. course, if it was a comedy, he probably would have been more contributory. But this was sort of like, so then what, so then what we're feeling then is like, you know, he always wanted to get deep and deep and deep with it. And what are the reasons for it? He wasn't really challenging your lines so much as wanting to really make sure that we really understood everything that was going on. And of course, in that kind of story, you know, knowing what the, what the movie is, yeah. how would we feel in that situation? So it was great to have him figuring it out. And again, that was a wonderful experience. But we, we rambled. We started, we started to talk about something our best friends were. What was it about? It was about... Uh, yeah, so we uh, we got through the article, so now... Um, oh, okay, so, uh, the, okay, the so, so yeah. anyway, so that so I'd been to that four-day Chicago wedding, yeah. and I'd seen that, that whole cluster thing of all the people that are coming from everywhere, and and he's the groom, and he's the odd man out, because he's not from Chicago, but the wife's from Chicago, and oh my God. So Chris and I thought that was just really a weird four days. It was like an <laughs> Olympics. It was fun, and I'd never spent any time in Chicago... And I really liked Chicago. So there was that. <clears throat> but then the real thing was um, was George. That was the reason that I specced it. I had long wanted to write a piece where the smartest, kindest, wisest, most attractive, most decent person in the cast was a gay guy. And nobody was doing that then. I mean, Will and Grace should be giving me royalties. I mean, that, that, I'm telling you, now it's, like, now it's like a cliche. But no one had ever done it before. Ever done it before. And that's what I wanted to do. And, um, and so I, I expected. The true reason I expected was I didn't want, I didn't want the, the Julianne character to get the guy at the end. That was the other thing that I wanted to try. So I have my own ideas about romantic comedies. And I hate villains in any, in any script at all. Villains suck. That's like boring. You always understand the whole movie's going to be when you know there's a villain. So I wanted, I wanted the, 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 the Cameron Diaz character to be so spectacularly great that you felt you couldn't beat her and then so spectacularly nice that you didn't even want to beat her so the audience said, I don't know what I want. I'm going to be miserable no matter what happens. <laughs> Of course Julia's going to get the guy because she's Julia Roberts, and so of course. And I'm just going to feel terrible for poor Cameron Diaz who's going to get her heart broken and she doesn't deserve it. She's nice. Julia's not nice. She's fabulous, but she's Julia. 
it's very so, typical for the other man, the other woman, to be kind of like a schmuck or sort of like. That's a, all it ever is. It's like, you know, see business in Seattle. They're, yeah. they're they're all that way. That's it's just it's just the audience knows who's gonna. So that was the other thing I wanted to do, so Julia wouldn't get the guy. So now, so now what happens is I finish the script on spec. My agents at CEA are going to auction it off, but it gets leaked out. And, and I'm flying on a plane to Hong Kong on a different project. And so it had to go out while, while I was on the plane because many people had seen it already. Yeah. And it wound up getting sold, and there were actually, while I was on the plane, there were actually two bids each for different actors, and I hadn't given it to the actresses, so one was one was Bullock and one was, was Julia. Um, and my lawyer made the deal, Alan Wertheimer. He made the choice. Um, and, I mean, he knew that I was... That was big. I'm a big fan of both those actresses, but particularly a fan of Julia's. I worked with her on um, Sleeping with the Enemy. Uh, at any rate, so... So all that happens, but but the thing about the about the gay guy, and that's why you want to do the film. So the idea of the of the when you got away, I said, well, it only makes sense, of course, if you try to get him back. Otherwise, there's no movie. So you got to go and try to get the guy back. That was the whole idea, and and I wanted her to be a terrible person. I wanted her to cheat and lie and steal, and I wanted her best friend, but not to be a girlfriend. I said, I hate that sidekick thing—the sister, the girlfriend. Is she just there for whatever? No, it should be this guy. I'd never even heard of Rupert Everett before, but boy, was he fabulous. I know he's very yeah. famous and he was great, but I just... No, I, he stole every scene in the film. It's, uh, it's Well, and, and he uh, owes me a big assist yeah. for that, because I, I wrote him to steal every scene in the film. Did, uh, did you work with him at all on no, no, set? No, no, no. Oh, no, I wasn't on set. lines? Wasn't on set at all. Yeah. And he, I'm sure he ad-libbed a bunch, and PJ, who's hilarious, the director, ad-libbed a bunch. And so a lot of those lines were ad-libs. Ad and Jerry Zucker is the producer, who's a great comedy writer, so they were all there. And, yeah. So it was, it was very collaborative. But now the, the one point of the story is this at the end. So at the end when I see the film, and it's always a shock. It's always different than you think it's going to be. I mean, Rain Man was so different. Barry Levinson had made changes. And at the end of the film, which you never saw, the couple drives away, and a guy taps Julia on the shoulder as the band's playing. And it's an actor named John Corbett, who later became my big fat Greek wedding. Yeah. And his character is named Annie Connolly. I'd never written this. And he says, hey, I'm a friend of Michael's, and he says you're the greatest girl that ever lived. And can I ask you to dance? And she says, sure. And she smiles that Julia smile, and he dances with her, and you're in the preview. And the energy in the audience just goes to zero. They fucking hated that. They hated that. And I hated that. <laughs> I, I'd said to everybody, are you crazy? To she... Does she have to be happy, like, right then? Do we really think Julia Roberts is going to go to a nunnery and never find a guy? I think she'll find a guy. I mean, the idea is she learned what love is about and what you really want and the right way to do it, and she learned who she was, and I'm pond scum, and she put them together, and she became this whole different person who's now going to go and find wonderful love. Why did some handsome guy have to dance with her? Like, now it's okay, because she's not sad. So the cards are like... I'm frequently wrong about a million things. So this one particular thing I was right about. So John Kelly, best studio executive I ever knew, late John Kelly, says, okay, get, get, get Jerry and PJ to lunch tomorrow and fix this thing, and I want whatever you want, and then we're going to all meet in the big room. And 
and we're going to tell us what to do. So we meet. I invent seven new. I did go to sleep. I invented seven new scenes. Pitch it to everybody at lunch. Go pitch it to the whole big room. And what I say is what you saw. And this is like the whole point of the movie to me. The whole point of the movie to me is there's more to love in this world than the person you're sleeping with. <laughs> and the person she loves most in the world isn't the guy she lost. It's the guy who's her best friend. That's the guy whose arms she wants to be in tonight. That's the guy that tells her that love exists. That's the guy that tells her that, that she's a great person. He's the guy that knows she's a great person. Not a handsome stranger who's heterosexual and knows she's pretty. <laughs> That's different. She already knows she's pretty. <laughs> she's, she's just, she's so remarkable. She, when she came on to Sleeping with the Enemy and I'd only met her once I was pitching or something um, at Paramount and, and Kim Basinger left this movie like two weeks before we were going to rehearse to be with Prince who was her boyfriend in, in Minnesota. And we were trying to recast, and I said, there's this great actress that you don't know yet, but she's in a movie that used to be called Cherry 2000, but it's going to be called Pretty Woman, but it's not out yet, but believe me, she's going to be a gigantic freaking star. And I, I spent a couple hours with her, and she's so charming. She comes in, she interviews, she gets the, she gets the part, and now we're, I'm watching the dailies, and like, God, it's, she's so incredible. Every silence, every, everything. She's so much a better actor than anybody gives her credit for because it all seems so natural and just so easy, but the craft is spectacular. And and uh, now we get to this moment where the director says, well, you're going to write this scene, and all it's going to say in the scene is, Julia tries on hats. I said, how long is this scene going to run? He said, I hope an hour. <laughs> he, said, he said, it just stops the movie, and you just gonna, we're going to play brown-eyed girl, <laughs> we, we got we got the rights to the brown eyed girl. We're gonna play Van Morrison's brown eyed girl, and we're just gonna watch her try on hats in slow motion. <laughs> in this movie where her husband's trying to kill her and chase her, and you know, um, there's not too many stars like that. You just you watch that star turning to go wow. <laughs> one in a, one in a zillion. The proudest moment was coming back on that Oscar night, holding the statue. If you go through the little press thing, you know, they have like a, a thousand people, different rooms, international, blah, 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 blah. I go back onto the stage wondering how I can get off the stage and up the stairs and to see my, my dad, and my dad's there in the orchestra. They let him in. I don't know. I, I never knew how. He's there standing where the orchestra pit is. And I get to give him the Oscar and jump down and kiss him and hug him. Um, and that's, that's the greatest moment. Um, the project that I enjoyed the most probably was Joylet Club. I think it's my favorite film that I was involved with. I think it's the best, for me, the best film. And um, and the one that's the most popular is not Rain Man. It's, it's Best Friend's Wedding. That's the one I keep hearing about constantly, constantly, constantly.